Hi everyone, welcome to today's Beach Talk in Matthew 26, where we help you understand every word of God that's in the word of God. Now my objective is simple. It's uh, disciples making disciples who plant churches that plant churches so the grassroots movement of Jesus can continue all over the world wherever God wants it to go. So now our vision this year is to multiply from four uh, churches in two countries to eight churches in four countries. So this is a really big vision. We'd like you to pray with us so that God can help us to accomplish this. So today we're in Matthew chapter 26 and it says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all of these sayings that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days of the Passover, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So Jesus reminds his disciples here of his coming suffering and his crucifixion. Now the disciples thought that it was impossible that Jesus should suffer. Now Jesus reminded them that this was not the case. This is the hardest lesson as his disciples to learn that pain, suffering, and injustice are a part of life. They thought that Jesus was immune to this. They were wrong, though, uh, and we often think that we're immune to this as well, and, and we're also wrong. Um, this is the hardest thing for the real followers, the real disciples of Jesus uh, to accept. Now in verse 3 it says, The plot against Jesus, then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, the chief uh, people assembled at the palace of the high priests who were called uh, Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him, they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar uh, among the people. <clears throat> now here we see the plot against Jesus. Now there was a long controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders and it had finally come to this, it had come to a head. Now William Barclay points out that between 37 BC and AD 67, there were no fewer than 28 high priests. Now this is suggested that Caiaphas, that Caiaphas was the high priest. Now this was an extraordinary time, uh, an extraordinarily long time for him to be the, the high priest. He did it for a number of years. And he, this, was, this was the group that drove the crucifixion of Jesus, this group of 28 religious leaders. Now we pick it up in verse 6, and when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him uh, having an alabaster flask of very costly oil, and she pointed, poured it out in his head as he sat at the table. The disciples saw it, <clears throat> and they were indignant. They said, now why this waste for this fragrant oil uh, might have been sold uh, and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of this, he said to them, why do you make this take this trouble? She's done a good work for me, for you have the poor with you always, but me you don't always have with you, for in pouring out the fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Surely I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Now, one more beautiful thing happens before this, and this woman anoints Jesus before his death. Now, the woman came to him having an alabaster flask, a very costly oil. Now, Judas criticized the, this display of love and honor for Jesus, uh, but Jesus defended her as an example of someone who simply did a good work for him, uh, in fact, an extravagant work for him. It was reckless, really. Giving for Jesus should be remembered uh, in regards to this wound for as long as the gospel is to be preached. Now, what Judas called waste, Jesus called a beautiful thing. Now, anytime you sacrifice for Jesus, 
it's a beautiful thing. That's the little reminder of this story here. He says, you'll have the poor with me always, but me you don't always have with you. Jesus didn't say this to discourage generosity and the kind treatment of the poor. Jesus pointed out the appropriate nature of this moment to honor him in an extravagant way. Now, even if she did not understand the full significance of what she did, Mary's act said something that the disciples didn't say or do. She gave Jesus the love and attention he deserved before his great suffering. She understood more because she was in a place of great understanding being at the feet of Jesus. Now, she probably did not know that her action meant uh, when she anointed Jesus for his burial, the consequences of this simplest action done for Christ may be much greater than we think when we do these things. Now, what Mary did was remarkable for its motive because it was, it was from a pure and loving heart. It was remarkable in that it was done for Jesus alone, and it was remarkable in that it was unusual and it was extraordinary. Now look at verse 14, it says, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they continued out, they continued to put uh, 30 pieces of silver. Now from that time forward, they sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Now Judas stabs Jesus in the back by forming an agreement with the religious leaders. Now let's look at this a little bit. The scriptures present no sense of reluctance in Judas. There was only one motivation, pure and simple. It was greed. And he said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? Now, according to the Bible, there was no noble intention in Judas's heart. His motive was simply money, and his price really wasn't that high. In fact, the exact value of 30 pieces of silver is a little difficult to figure out, but it wasn't, it was not a big amount. Was, you know, maybe 50 bucks. Not a lot. Now look at verse 17. Now on the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, now go into the city and say to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, this time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared uh, the Passover. Now, when evening had come, he sat down uh, with the 12. Now here we have one last meal uh, with the disciples. Now this must, this must have been a very moving moment for Jesus. Now Passover remembers the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, which was the central act of redemption in the Old Testament. Jesus now provided a new center of redemption to be remembered by a new ceremonial meal. Now, it would be wrong for us to say that there was no Passover lamb at the Last Supper Jesus had with his disciples. He was the Passover lamb. Paul would later refer to Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for this in 1 Corinthians. Now, look at verse 21. Uh, it says, Now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, for each of them began to say to him, Well, Lord, is it I? And he answered them, he who dipped his hand uh, with me in the dish will betray me. Now the Son of Man indeed goes just as, it, just as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered uh, and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You have said it <clears throat> pretty heavy. Jesus gives Judas a last opportunity to repent, just like he gives us one last opportunity to repent.
to repent. Now, in the midst of their Passover meal, Jesus made a startling announcement. <clears throat> he told his disciples that one of their own, these 12 who had lived and heard and learned from Jesus for three years, would be one the one that would betray him. Now, it's easy to lose appreciation for how terrible it was for one of Jesus' own to betray him. For good reason, Dante's great poem about heaven and hell places Judas in the lowest part. Backstabbing is the worst when it comes from somebody who absolutely knows better. Now, Jesus identified the betrayer as a friend, someone who ate at the same table with him. Now, Charles Spurgeon points out, it is a beautiful trait in the character of the disciples that they did not suspect each other. But every one of them inquired, almost incredulously, as the form of the question implies, Lord, is it I? No one said, Lord, is it Judas? This is how close they were. Now look at verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, Now take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many of the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine uh, from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Well, what's happening here? Well, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, what we know now as communion. This is what we practice now in our, in our time. Now, when the bread was lifted up at Passover, the head of the meal said, This is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. Now, everything eaten at the Passover meal had a symbolic meaning. The bitter herbs recalled the bitterness of slavery. The salt water remembered the tears shed under Egypt's oppression. The main course of the meal, a lamb freshly sacrificed for that particular household, did not symbolize anything connected to the agonies of Egypt. It was the sin-bearing sacrifice that allowed the judgment of God to pass over the household that had believed. Now, the Passover created a nation. A mob of slaves were freed from Egypt and became a nation. This new Passover also creates a people, those uniting in Jesus Christ, remembering and trusting in his sacrifice. Now, take and eat, this is my blood, this is the blood of the new covenant. Jesus didn't give the normal explanation of the meaning of each of the foods. He reinterpreted them in himself. And the focus was no longer on the suffering of Egypt, of Israel and Egypt, but on the sin-bearing suffering of Jesus on their behalf. Now, this is how we remember what Jesus did for us. <clears throat> As we eat the bread, we should remember how Jesus was broken, pierced, and beaten with stripes for our redemption. As we drink the cup, we should remember that his blood, his life, was poured out on the cross for us. Now, this is how we fellowship with Jesus, because his redemption had reconciled us to God, and now we can sit down to a meal with Jesus and enjoy one another's company. Now, remarkably, Jesus announced the institution of a new covenant. No mere man could have ever instituted a new, a new covenant between God and man, but Jesus was the God-man, so he has the authority to, to do this and to establish a new covenant with his blood, even as an old covenant was sealed with blood, as we find in the book of Exodus. Now, this new covenant concerns our inner transformation that cleanses us from all sins. He says, for I will 
forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This transformation puts God's word and his will inside of us, in our hearts. He says, I'll put my law on their minds and I'll write it on their hearts. This covenant is all about a new, close relationship with God. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. <clears throat> now, what can we say that the blood of Jesus made the new covenant possible and it also made it sure and reliable it is confirmed with the life of God himself now because of what Jesus did on the cross we can have a new covenant relationship with God and we're thankful for that Jesus gave thanks in the ancient Greek language thanks is the word Eucharist this is why the commemoration of the Lord's table is some is sometimes called the Eucharist now Jesus looked forward to a future celebration of the Passover in heaven one that has not yet been celebrated with his people he is waiting for all of his people to be gathered to him and then there will be a great supper the marriage supper of the lamb talks about in the Revelation chapter 19 now this is the fulfillment of Jesus's kingdom and what he longed for now look at verse 30 <clears throat> it says and when they had sung a hymn they went out to the Mount of Olives this is very important Jesus sings with his disciples and goes out to the Mount of Olives now worship comes before death for Jesus and worship comes before death for his disciples today this is the one place in the New Testament where we can find Jesus singing right before he died what a powerful metaphor for those of us who sing to him today as his disciples. Now, genuine worship always gets us ready to die to ourselves for whatever God has next for us to do for him. Now, look at verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me on this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered what's happening here he says <clears throat> uh, but after I've been raised I will go before you to Galilee and Peter answered and said to him even if all are made to stumble because of you I will never be made to stumble now Jesus said to him <laughs> most assuredly I say to you that this night before the rooster crows you Peter will deny me three times Peter said to him even if I have to die with you I will not deny you and so said all of the disciples now Jesus here predicts the desertion of his disciples the time when they abandoned him when he needed them the most he didn't say this to condemn his disciples but to show them that he really was in command of the situation and to demonstrate that the scriptures regarding the suffering of the Messiah had to be fulfilled now Peter said even if I have to die with you I will not deny you now Peter was tragically unaware of both the spiritual reality and the spiritual battle that Jesus clearly saw. Peter felt brave in the moment and yet had no perception beyond that moment. Now soon Peter would be intimidated before a, a servant girl and before her Peter would deny that he even knew Jesus. This happens in a little bit. Now Jesus knew that Peter would fail in what he thought was his strong area. Courage and boldness. Though this warning Jesus gave Peter an opportunity to reconsider his own weaknesses Jesus said it so clearly to Peter Peter you will be made to stumble you will forsake me your master you will do it this very night before the rooster crows you will deny that you have any association with me or even know me and you won't do it only once you're gonna do it three different times 
So this was an opportunity that Peter did not use. Instead, he said, well, if I have to die with you, I will, den I will not deny you. Now, Jesus knew Peter far better than Peter did and his overestimation of himself. Now, Peter was ready for a fall. When we overestimate ourselves, we get ready to take a stumble and fall. Now, we can choose to be humble or we can choose to go ahead and stumble like Peter here in our own lives. Now, how do you know when you're ready to stumble? Well, <laughs> ask your wife. She'll be happy to tell you. <laughs> Look at verse 36. Now, <clears throat> when Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death stay here and watch with me and he went a little further and fell on his face saying father if it is possible let this cup pass for me nevertheless not as i will but as you will now jesus's prayer in was in deep deep distress jesus was disturbed in part from knowing the physical horror waiting for him on the cross as he was crucified and he saw the full effect of what was about to happen. Jesus knew what was coming down the pipe. Now, the word in the Greek here is expressive of the greatest sorrow imaginable. It's a phrase that contains the word for violent emotion and the word shock. Now, Jesus prayed according to his heart and the will of the Father. Since Jesus drank the cup of judgment and the cross, we know that it's not possible for us for salvation to come any other way. Salvation by the work of Jesus at the cross is the only way. If there was any other way to be made right before God, then Jesus died an unnecessary death. Think about that. And Jesus became, as it were, the enemy of God who was judged and forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury so he would not have to drink, so we would not have to drink from that cup. This was the source of Jesus's great distress. And Jesus was unafraid of death, and when he had finished his work on the cross, the work of receiving and bearing <clears throat> and satisfying the righteous judgment of God, the Father upon our sin, when he finished that work, he simply yielded himself to death as was his choice. Jesus came to the point of decision in Gethsemane, it wasn't that he had not decided before, nor had, he, nor had he consented before, but now he had come upon a unique point of decision. He drank the cup before the cross. He decided to go all in. He knew what was coming, and he chose to do it. Now, this struggle was a place of crushing, and it has an important place in fulfilling God's plan of redemption. If Jesus failed here, he would have failed at the cross. Now, his success here made the victory at the cross possible, just like it does in our life. Now, the struggle at the cross was, was first one in prayer prior to what he was facing. Now, look at verse 40. Then he came to the disciples and found them asleep, and he said to Peter, Could you not watch with me one hour, watch and pray, so that you won't fall into temptation? And then look at this. He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed saying, Father, if this cup cannot pass for me, uh, your will be done. <clears throat> and he came and he found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy, so he left them. He went away again and he prayed a third time saying the same words. 
Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus wins the battle through prayer prior to what he was facing. You see, Jesus valued and desired the help of his friends in the battle of prayer and decision, but even without their help, he endured in prayer until the battle was won. This was an example for us. Jesus knew Peter would fail, yet he encouraged him to victory, knowing that the resources were found in both watching and praying. If Peter woke up both physically and spiritually and drew close independence upon God, he would have kept him from denying Jesus at that critical hour. Now, Jesus found victory at the cross by succeeding in the struggle of prayer. Peter, just like us, failed in later temptation because he failed to watch and pray. The spiritual battle is often won or lost before a crisis comes. Now, speaking kindly about the disciples, Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away and prayed. One commentator said that fervent prayer loves privacy. Think about that. So Jesus prayed a third time, saying the same words. Now this shows us that it was not unspiritual to make the same request to God several times. Some hyper-spiritual people believe, believe that if we ask for something more than once, it means that we don't have faith. Now, that may be true for some in some situations, but Jesus shows us that repeated prayer can be consistent, can be completely consistent with steadfast faith. It just depends on what you're talking to him about. Now, Jesus knew that Judas would uh, later arrest him and that he was on the way. He could have run away and escaped this, but Jesus rose to meet Judas, who was in, and Jesus was in complete control of this entire situation. Now, look at verse 47. It says, And while he was speaking, behold, Judas one of the twelve with a great multitude with, came with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whoever I kiss, he is the Christ. And I want you to seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Now Judas betrays Jesus right here in this moment. Now they clearly regarded Jesus as a dangerous man and came to him with great force. G Judas warmly greeted Jesus, even giving him the, a customary kiss, but the kiss only precisely identified Jesus to the authorities who came to arrest Jesus. There are no more hollow, hypocritical words in the Bible than greetings rabbi in the mouth of Judas, the loving, heartfelt words of Jesus calling Judas friends stand in total contrast. There's a lesson here. Beware of meaningless, deceptive cliches from people. <laughs> now look at verse 51. Suddenly, when those who were Jesus stretched out their hand, he drew out his sword. He struck the servant of the high priest, cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place. <clears throat> For those who take the sword will die by the sword. Or do you think that I can now pray to my Father, and he will provide with me more than twelve legions of angels? How then could he did this so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, and that it was supposed to happen this way? Now in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Why have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. 
Then all of the disciples forsook him and they fled. Now let's unpack this a little bit. The arrest of Jesus in Gethsemane shows, shows us a few things. One of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck him and cut off his ear. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us, but we know from John 18 that this unarmed swordman was Peter, the same person who would deny, who, who would deny Jesus. Now, Judas was at this time so in, uh, Judea was at this time so infested with robbers and cutthroats that it was very unsafe for people to go around without something to protect themselves. Now, had Jesus wanted divine help at this moment, now he could have had it. There were more than 12 legions of angels ready to come to his aid. But he didn't do that. With one sword, Peter was willing to take on an army of men, yet he couldn't pray with Jesus for one hour. <laughs> Prayer is the best work that we can do, and it's also the most difficult. Now, with his sword, Peter accomplished very little. He only cut off one ear, and he really just made a mess, and then Jesus had to clean up his mess. There's so much in here, in here for us here. So when Peter moved on, uh, in the power of the world, he only cut off ears, but when he was filled with the Spirit using the Word of God, Peter would pierce hearts later on in the book of Acts. You see, with prayer, we can pierce hearts. And at that moment when it seemed that Jesus had nothing and had no advantage, he knew that he still had a Father in heaven and access to his Father and his resources through prayer. So, all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled with all power at his disposal, Jesus was again in total command. He was not the victim of circumstance, but he managed circumstances for the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, at this point, all the disciples scattered, running for their own safety. A, a few, Peter and John, at least followed back to see what would happen at a distance. Now, none of them stood beside Jesus and said, I have given my life to this man. What do you accuse him of? You may accuse me of also. Instead, it was fulfilled what Jesus said, all of you will be made to stumble because of me. Now look at verse 57. And those who had laid a hold of Jesus led him away from Caiaphas, the high priest, and where the scribes and the elders were assembled, Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard and went and sat with the servants to see the end. Now, we see Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, right here. This was not the first appearance of Jesus before a judge or official on the night of his betrayal. On that night, the day of his crucifixion, Jesus actually stood trial several times before different judges. They all sort of were passing the buck. They didn't really want to claim responsibility for what was about to happen to him. But Jesus came to the home of Caiaphas. Uh, he was led to the home of Annas, who was the ex-high priest the power beyond the throne of the high priest. Now Caiaphas had gathered a group of the Sanhedrin to pass judgment on Jesus. Now the Sanhedrin gathered, again, this time an official session, and they conducted uh, Jesus' trial. Now look at verse 59. Now the chief priests, the elders, and the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they didn't find any. Even though many false witnesses had come forward, they found none, but it, but last two false witnesses came forward and said this fellow said I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days <clears throat> now 
This nighttime trial was actually illegal according to the Sanhedrin's own laws and regulations. According to Jewish law, all criminal trials must begin and end in the daylight. Therefore, this decision to condemn Jesus was already made. They conducted a second trial in daylight because they knew the first trial, the real trial, had no legal standing. They were doing whatever they could to convict Jesus. It's funny how often the earthly legal system is completely rigged with the predetermined outcome. I'm looking forward to heaven when God, who is our judge, will set everything straight up. It's going to be awesome. Now, this was only one of the many illegal things for in Jesus' trial. Only decisions made in the official meeting place were valid. The first trial was held at the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. William Barclay points out these were the Sanhedrin's own rules. And it is abundantly clear in their eagerness to get rid of Jesus, they broke their own rules. Now the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. This is a remarkable testimony to the life and integrity of Jesus for having lived such a public life and having such a public ministry, it was difficult that they couldn't find even one testimony against him. Now, after all the false witnesses had their say, Jesus was finally charged with threatening to destroy the temple as in a modern-day bomb threat. Clearly, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But this glorious prophecy of his resurrection was, tristed, was twisted into a terrorist threat. <laughs> Now, verse 62, And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, it is, as I, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you that thereafter you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in on the clouds of heaven. Here Jesus testifies at his trial. Jesus sat silently under the, uh, as he was, com as was commanded by the high priest to answer the accusations against him. Now remarkably, Jesus kept silent and answered nothing until it was absolutely necessary in obedience for him to speak. Jesus could have mounted a magnificent legal defense here, calling witnesses about his deity and his power and his character and his miracles and the time that he fed people. Even demons themselves could have showed up at Jesus' trial to testify for him, but he didn't say a whole lot. Seeing that the trial was going badly, Caiaphas confronted Jesus, acting more as an accuser than an impartial judge. Jesus simply testified to the truth. He was indeed the Christ the Son of God, he answered as briefly and directly as possible. Jesus added this one word of warning. He warned them that though they sat in judgment of him now, he would one day sit in judgment of them with a far more binding judgment and not a banana republic. Heaven will be awesome because Jesus will shut the mouth of every politician and power broker and demand an account of them. Can't we all wait for that? Power is a typically Jewish reverential expression to uh, pronouncing a sacred name of God, which might have been laid Jesus open to the charge of being blasphemous. But ironically, it was precisely that charge in which he was condemned. Now, verse 65, when the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy, what further, 
do what further witnesses do we need look uh, what do you think they answered and said he is deserving of death then they spat in his face and they beat him and others struck him with the psalms of, with the palms of their hands prophesy to us Christ who is the one who struck you now the accusation of blasphemy would have been correct except that Jesus whom he said he was it was no crime for the Christ the Son of God to declare who he really is now their verdict reveals the depths of their depravity they spit on him they hit him with their fists they slapped him with their open hands it's easy to think that they did this because they didn't know who he was now that is true in one sense because they would not admit to themselves that he was indeed the Messiah the Son of God now what else is happening here well we can also make a careful note this is how the enemies of God act they lie and they spit in God's face now this shows the amazing patience that God has towards all of us in our lives now look at verse 69 now Peter sat outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying you were also with Jesus of Galilee but he denied it before them saying well I don't know what you're talking about and when he had gone out to the gateway another girl saw him and said to those who were there this fellow was also a Jesus of Nazareth, but again he denied him with an oath. He says, I don't know that man. And a little later, those who stood by him came up and said to him, Surely you're one of them, for your speech betrays you, or your accent. He began to curse them and swear, I don't know this man. Now immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word that Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and he wept bitterly. Well, fearing association with Jesus, Peter denies his relationship with Jesus three different times, just like Jesus said he would. Now, Peter was not questioned before a hostile court or even with an angry mob. Peter's own fear made a servant girl and another girl host hostile monsters in his eyes, and he bowed in fear before them he merely lied he took an oath to that lie then he began to curse and swear finally Peter remembered and took it to heart what Jesus said but in this case he did so too late for now all he could do was weep bitterly yet Peter would be restored showing a significant contrast between Judas who was showing apostasy and Peter who was showing backsliding now, apostasy is giving up the truth as Judas did. Judas was sorry about his sin, but was not a sorrow leading to repentance. Backsliding is a decline from a spiritual experience that you once enjoyed. Peter slipped, but he would not fall. He wept bitterly, and this led to his repentance and restoration. Now, <laughs> we have covered a 